Uh, so this is part two uh, from last week, and I'm just continuing on on this idea of baptism. And a really quick refresher is uh, that uh, we didn't want to have either too low or too high a view of baptism. Okay, that's the frame of mind. We don't want to just think that baptism is only a symbol and there's nothing going on. That would be too low of a view of baptism. We also don't want to think that baptism is some sort of magic ritual, that if you just physically get baptized by a certain ordained person and you go under the water and you come up, that now you know, you've got your ticket to heaven and some magical spiritual thing has happened. That would be a very high view of baptism. And so we want to have a, an accurate and a right view of baptism that is from Scripture. And what we do know is that God intended baptism as the normal way in which we would be initiated into discipleship, that baptism is like an uh, acted-out prayer in which we say yes to the good news of the gospel and what Christ has done. And uh, last week we looked at that there is something taking place that God wants you to experience existentially in your existence. He wants you to experience that death in Christ and that resurrection in Christ or that unity to Christ. And so that's the first thing that we talked about taking place in baptism. That is a real thing. It is more than a symbol. There is a grace imparted in the sense that God wants you to experience unity with Christ in his death and resurrection, and also unity with the wider church. As you uh, experience baptism, remember Paul connected it to circumcision uh, in the Old Testament. And so just as ethnic people of Israel were circumcised at their new birth, that is why we baptize new believers at their new spiritual birth. And so they become part of the new covenant people. And so that unity with God and with Jesus and his death and resurrection and that unity with the people of God is what's taking place. But today we're going to just go a little deeper again uh, with a couple more texts that show how God intends our baptism to be pointing us towards the means of saving and cleansing faith. Because we come to God, born into this world, trapped in slavery. We are in bondage to sin and we are in bondage to the powers and principalities of this world. And we need to be rescued out of the world. And for those of us that are believers, uh, especially that came to faith a little later in life, we remember those years when we were in bondage to our pride, to our selfishness, to our lust, to our addictions, uh, just to the ways of the world. And we got set free from the bondage and the darkness and the lies of the world into the light and the truth and the freedom of Jesus Christ. And we were set free from that. And so we are born trapped in slavery and in bondage to the world and stained and impure and unrighteous and not worthy of the presence of God. And so something has to happen. Something has to transpire to take us from bondage and slavery and impurity into freedom and purity and righteousness. And God intends baptism as the normal means by, again, we act out physically what he is accomplishing spiritually in setting us free. And so this is the meaning of baptism. He wants us to know that we are righteous and that we are rescued, that we are saved and that we are rescued. 1 Peter 3, 18-22 is our text, and I'll just read it for you here. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. What is Peter saying here about baptism? When he's talking about Noah and his family and the ark. And there's lots of interpretive challenges in this text, right? Like does 3.18 imply that Jesus' resurrection was spiritual and not physical? Does 3.19 say that Jesus preached the gospel to dead people in Hades? Uh, you know, those are good questions. And it's interesting because Peter accuses Paul of, of, of having difficult teaching. I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> Peter, pot, kettle. Um, but understanding those things about this text, just don't, don't look at those things right now. We can talk about those at another time if you like. But, but what Peter's talking about here is something significant about baptism. Peter draws a direct analogy of the means of God's grace and how God works out his grace, and he draws that analogy from Noah. And here's the picture. In a world full of sinners who refuse to believe in God and follow God, God patiently waits for a small group who will put their trust in him, Noah and his family. And God patiently waited while his means of salvation, the ark, was prepared. And through that means of salvation that he patiently waited for, eight persons were brought safely through the judgment by water that flooded the whole earth. And Peter says, this flood, this salvation that God pictured in Noah, baptism is like that. Baptism through water, which is death and then resurrection, is not effectual because of the physical washing of dirt from the body. Peter's very clear. He says, this is not some sort of magical ritual, and this is not something that's taking place to you physically, but this is something that is happening spiritually, and it's real. He's saying, this is effectual. This baptism mediates, or it enacts, a spiritual act that saves you just like the ark saved Noah. It was effective in saving Noah. It saved him through the judgment, the watery death. And baptism is an appeal to God for rescue and cleansing through the new means of God's salvation, which he waited patiently for. And what means of God's salvation did the world wait patiently for? Christ Jesus. The world waited for Christ to come. And God was patient Romans tells us that he was patient and he did not judge the former people that came before Christ. He waited until Christ could come and put their salvation in him and on his act on the cross and his resurrection. And so Peter says this is salvation that's taking place and it is rescuing you from a world that is disobedient to God. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul joins Peter in the New Testament practice of explaining and illuminating baptism and carrying forward Old Testament promises and the works of God to show what God is doing for us in baptism. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I do do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and when he talks about the fathers, he's talking about the the, uh, fathers of Israel. He says, Our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so now, so Peter's talked about Noah and how there is a lost world that a few are rescued from, that God waited patiently for their means of rescue. Now what is Paul talking about here? Paul pictures for us in baptism the rescue of the nation of Israel from Egypt. Who did the cloud go before? Who went through the sea? 
right? You, you all remember your Sunday school? This is the nation of Israel, right? God appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And the pillar of cloud was between them and the armies of Egypt and at the edge of the Red Sea. And then God parts the Red Sea and the people of Israel go through and then he destroys Egypt. But this was the means of escape of God's people from the bondage and the slavery that they were experiencing in Egypt. And Paul is saying this is a picture for us that God has provided a way under the cloud and through the Red Sea by parting the waters. Paul is saying that all of Israel received baptism as well. It's not just us getting baptized today. God baptized the whole nation under the cloud and through the sea. And that by baptizing in that way, they were being saved from death first. What happened just before this, just like the night before what happened? They were saved by the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, right? Sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes at the Passover feast. And so Paul is saying, by connecting this to Israel going through the Red Sea, he's saying the nation of Israel was saved They were rescued by the blood of the lamb, by the sacrificial lamb, and then they were taken through waters of salvation and cleansing under the cloud and through the Red Sea. And so in the same way, Paul is saying, God's people, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He says, I want you to understand that this is what is going on in baptism, that just as our people were rescued by the blood of the lamb and then taken through the waters, so God's people today in the new covenant are rescued by the blood of Jesus and then taken through the saving waters of baptism that rescue and cleanse them. So that we are rescued from death. And so rescued, we're given a means of escape from sin and slavery to the world through baptism. And it's in the picture of baptism that is this washing, that is this renewal, that is this purity, that is this new righteousness that we have, not in ourselves because of what we can do, but because of what Christ has already done. And so from the bondage of the world and from the impurity of our sin, we can be set free, we can be washed, we can be rescued, and we can be righteous. And God intends us as Christians to see this. This is the testimony of what Christ has done. To be death for us. To die, to live the perfect life, and to die the sacrificial death that none of us could do because we were not perfect. And so Jesus did it for us. And we are pictured in that in baptism, going down into the water and up again in new life. And what comes along with that rescue and that salvation and that breaking of bondage from death also comes righteousness and purity and cleansing. And so baptism then is the normal means by which we would experience the grace of God and remember the grace of God in that cleansing. And Paul goes on, if you keep reading in chapter 10, to say that our baptism doesn't keep us perfect. Again, it's not some sort of magic ritual that now that you've been baptized, you're now never going to sin again and you're going to live the perfect life because you have this uh, experience of baptism. He goes on in chapter 10 to say, hey, look, um, you know, after they went through the Red Sea, the people of Israel, they grumbled. He says, don't be, don't be like your forefathers who grumbled against God. Don't be like them who were proud. Don't be like them who uh, tested God. Don't be like them who engaged in immorality or became idolaters. In other words, there's still a lifetime of sanctification. There's still a lifetime of growing in our maturity and in our righteousness and growing in our obedience to God. Or in other words, there's still a lifetime of ongoing washing that is ahead of each disciple, even after they've taken this step of baptism. 
But our baptism is the sign by which we look back and remember that we've been rescued and set free from slavery. Not that we're never going to have to be washed again. Not that this washing isn't part of our discipleship. This sanctification isn't something that we need, but that we have been washed. We do have a new righteousness now spiritually through Christ Jesus. And I just want to finish off with two examples from the Gospels and from Jesus directly. And I think Jesus foreshadows this cleansing nature of baptism as it's connected to his own death in his first miracle at the wedding of Cana. And in John chapter 2 describes this sort of initiation of Jesus into ministry. And here we have a wedding taking place. And we could talk about that if we wanted to. We already have all the symbolism of a wedding that is taking place and the unity that is to come to us and the wedding uh, of the church, the bride of Christ and Jesus. That's, that's one picture that's there. But in addition to that, when Jesus is asked by his mother... Jesus takes these six large stone jars of water, 30 gallons each. And those stone jars we learn in verse 6. John 2, 6 says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So the water that Jesus used was water that was meant for ritual purification, for washing as a Jewish person, the the ritual washing that they would do before they eat or before they engage in any sort of activity. And so there's these essentially baptism vessels. And instead of pouring out water, these baptism vessels now pour out wine. And what is wine to us? It's a symbol of Jesus' shed blood. And so Jesus actually scolds his mother here as this is all taking place. Jesus actually scolds his mother for asking him to do this miracle. But he says, he says, my hour has not yet come. And, and, and Jesus is basically sort of like saying, come on, mom, like, it's not the time right now to be hinting at what's going to be happening next, okay? Like, I have three years of ministry to go till I get to that point. And you're asking me to do something here that is a pretty big picture of what it is that's going on. But Jesus, by doing this, it shows us that we will be purified, we will be made righteous, but it's not going to be a purification and a righteousness that comes about by the old ceremony of the law. It's not a purity and it's not a righteousness that's going to come about by ritual of washing. Rather, the new purity and the new righteousness and the new cleansing that is available to us is by joining in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's because of the shed blood of Christ that we have this purity. And so I think Jesus, right away when he's beginning this, and I think this part of his frustration with Mary, is like, yeah, I mean, I can do this, but let me tell you what it's really going to mean. It means that I'm going to show you that the purity, the ritual, the cleansing is coming from my blood. And then finally, again, at the other end of the, of the life of Jesus, literally, at the other end of his ministry, Jesus pictures this exact same teaching of baptism. In the most direct way, I think Jesus teaches his disciples the cleansing that they have received and the washing and the cleansing and the purification and sanctification that continues on in the life of a disciple after that cleansing and is found at the Last Supper as Jesus washes the feet of Peter. And you can just imagine this scene as they're going for this final Passover supper, a Passover supper, supper again, that is remembering 3,000 years earlier, the Passover of the people of Israel, and their rescue and their washing then. And Jesus takes off his cloak, he puts on the towel, he gets to the feet of the disciples, and he starts to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says to Jesus, You shall never wash my feet, And Jesus answered him, he said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, there's a cleansing, there's a righteousness that you need that you don't have. 
in order to be with me for eternity. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not then just my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He basically says, just pour the whole thing over me then. If, if, if being clean and cleansing is what I need, then baptize me, Jesus. I mean, I need the whole thing. And Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And he was speaking of Judas when he makes that statement. And so what is, what is Jesus picturing here in the life of a disciple is that you are clean. Later on in John, he says, my words have made you righteous. And there is a baptism that is going to make you righteous. He's baptized by water and he's going to baptize by the Spirit. So as you are a disciple, as you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, as you go through these waters of baptism, it's picturing the cleanliness, it's picturing the purity, it's picturing the righteousness that has been imparted to you by Christ. But Jesus says, you still got to wash your feet, right? I, I still got to clean you. There's still a life that you're walking through. And that life is impure and you still struggle in your flesh and there is still a purity and a righteousness that you don't have completely but i'm going to continue to wash you so that you can be completely clean but that righteousness is already yours you don't have to be baptized again you just need to be cleansed by the word of god you need to be cleansed by the work of jesus and that sanctification continues to take place so the picture here and what peter is saying with regard to the flood what Paul is saying regarding the Passover and the Red Sea, what Jesus is speaking of himself in the miracle, in the miracles and in the, in the picture of what he's doing, washing Peter's feet, what baptism is to God's people, it's all the same thing, right? Text after text after text, God is pointing us to say, this is what baptism means. This is what I intended baptism for you. We're rescued from death by the blood of Jesus And God takes us through the waters of baptism as a means of rescue from the slavery of sin. Just as God redeemed his people from the slavery of Egypt, he says, you are a people that are born into slavery. You are born into the slavery of the world, but there is a means of escape for you, of salvation. And by those means, it is the blood of Jesus and then it is the cleansing and the saving rescue of you through the water of baptism. And that sets us on a discipleship journey, putting us on a day-by-day basis in the righteousness of Jesus, but day-by-day we are continually rescued out of Egypt and out of the world and out of slavery and on a journey to the promised land. And that's another thing to remember about the rescue of Israel and the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. We're not only rescued out of the world, we are rescued into the kingdom of God. And so just as Israel was rescued out of Egypt and out of slavery... And then they went through their wandering in the wilderness, just as we will wander in our life. They were then rescued again through the water, through the Jordan, into the promised land. And so as believers, we picture these things as well in our baptism, that we're not just simply rescued out of the world, but we're rescued into the promised land. We're rescued into all of the promises of the kingdom of God. And so you are not going to be perfect when you are baptized. And you're not going to be perfect after you are baptized. You're going to start as a little child in the family of God and receive that sign of the covenant when you were just a little baby believer. And then you're going to mature into your faith. And you're going to need your feet washed along the way. I mean, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus 36 hours later. This is the man who Jesus just said is clean and has just washed his feet. But Christians, you look back on your own baptism with the assurance that God has given you a promise. 
And as you walk with him in faith, your baptism has done its work of grace in you. That you can know that you have that rescue, you have that freedom from bondage, and that you have that righteousness of Christ, and you have that cleanliness and that purity before God, not in what you do, but in what God has done for you in your faith and in baptism. Now, for those of you who are still waiting for that freedom, those of you that are sort of listening to this and you're saying, okay, I, I get the picture, I get, I get the symbolism, I get, what's, I get what's going on, but that hasn't happened for me yet. The point of these testimonies this morning, the reason that we stand as disciples and, and go through baptism and, and share this witness of what has gone on in our life, and it doesn't matter what it is, you know, whether it was some sort of rebellion and you've got to lay your sword down in the sand before Jesus and give up the fight, you know, or whether you've been running and you've got to stop running and just let God catch you, you know, or you think you have done some horrible things or horrible things have been done to you, there is nothing that the love of God cannot overcome. There is nothing that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross cannot pay. And so if you're listening to these things and seeing the symbolism and hearing the testimonies, but you still feel like you're stuck there, then you can know today. Today is the day that you can know that God has made these promises and he has given us this testimony in his scripture and he has given us the witness of his disciples and he's given us the life of his own son on the cross so that we can know that we have this freedom from bondage, this rescue from the world and this new purity that we never imagined that we could ever have. That purity is there for you. Through faith in God and his promises, there is rescue and there is righteousness for all of us. And so we don't want to take too high a view of baptism and confuse the means of grace with actual grace, right? The means of grace is still faith, but the act of grace and the acted out prayer for us can be baptism, to say yes to these promises of God. And so for these people today, they've received in a special way this union with Christ. They've They've received in a special way the grace of knowing the rescue that they have from the, from the bondage and the slave, slavery of the world. They have a unique way today of knowing the righteousness and redemption and purity and cleansing that has taken place for them because of their faith in Jesus Christ and because they've paired that faith with acts of obedience in their baptism. And so if you're here today and you're a believer and you're baptized, you're looking back on your baptism as more than just a one-time obedience. That your baptism is actually something that you carry forward with you. It's a comforting and affirming sign of our unity with Christ and his people. It's, it's that comforting and affirming sign of that righteousness that we now have in Christ. That we have been set free from the slavery to the world. That we have been set free from death. But then there's some people here that may be believers that haven't been baptized. And you're looking at this and you're saying... I always thought baptism was just sort of an optional thing that you know you could do or not do. But I'm hoping what we hope and what we what scripture teaches is that God actually intends something meaningful for you, profound for you in your baptism. And so if you're a believer here today and you've just never been baptized, I ask you to go home and look at these scriptures, come and talk to me and understand what God can do for you and what God is doing in this step of obedience that you would take to be baptized. There is much grace, much that he wants to impart to you in this act. And then there's other people who are, um, just as I said, unbaptized. Or sorry, here's the tricky one. I'll just touch on this one. 
uh, baptized unbeliever. Okay, so that happens too, right? Because you got baptized because all the other teenagers were getting baptized, or you got baptized because your parents, you know, wanted you to get baptized and would have made mom and dad happy. But then as you look at the years past your baptism, and not just, you know, like I said, Peter denied Christ 36 hours later. So I'm not just talking about looking at the years in terms of have you ever done anything wrong. You're, you're still going to be a sinful person caught in your flesh who is reliant on the grace of God day by day. But if you look at that and you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, that, that baptism never really was my baptism. I did not have, as Peter says, a clear conscience before God, and I've never had a clear conscience before God since then then it is something that you can sit down and look at these scriptures and come and talk to me and consider that if now you're a baptized unbeliever, but you realize that you want to believe, that you want to have that faith in Jesus Christ, it's there for you. And that that baptism might have even been the the seed of that. And you look back on that and say, I have to go back and re-examine my life in light of that baptism. Hey, that's a tricky situation to be in. And you can come and talk to me about what, what that baptism meant to you and what that baptism can mean to you today. And then finally, as I said, there's the unbaptized unbeliever, which is kind of the normal situation. And again, I just put it out there for you, that if you're considering baptism closely, looking at these scriptures, understanding what God is picturing of the promise of rescue and purity and redemption, it is a good means and a good path which can lead you to Christ. Because in baptism, we have pictured perfectly from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenant to the New, the promises of God, of rescue and righteousness and the actions of Jesus Christ, the vessel of our salvation, who the whole world and God waited patiently to come. And when Jesus came, he lived the perfect life and he died the perfect sacrificial death to be resurrected and conquer death, resurrected the third day to prove the promises of God that his death was sufficient and that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and on that sacrifice can be rescued, is rescued, and is righteous, is pure before God. That salvation is available to all of you who don't know God yet. So come and talk to somebody about that too if that's where you're at. Let me just pray.